Jeff, welcome. Thanks, Paulina. It's great to be with you. Great to great to meet you. Awesome. So you have a book uh, called The Hot Seat, and I am excited to talk to you about your time in GE. Um, let's start with the fact that you joined GE in 1982. Can you tell me a little bit about your road to CEO? Yeah. So, um, you know, I kind of went to uh, college and business school. I'd say, you know, I'm kind of a combination of a math nerd and a football player. So I liked problem solving my whole life, but I also like team sports. And, and so I, when I was getting out of business school, I really wanted to be an operator. I wanted to work with people. I thought about consulting and investment banking and spend a summer consulting, but I really decided uh, that I wanted to go on an operational path, I would say in my early career. Uh, GE was even in those days known as a great training ground. And I thought I'd go there for five years and I ended up staying 35 years, right? And so I, I had kind of a classic, I worked in three different businesses. I worked in multiple cycles. I almost got fired. Uh, I had good bosses. And so like lots of careers, it's it's a function of, you know, what you learn, your experiences, a little bit of luck. And over, you know, 20 years and, and a bunch of different assignments, I ended up becoming uh, CEO in 2000, uh, 2001. So, you know, I, I, but in some ways, my whole career reflected problem solving, teamwork, and the things that kind of, you know, I'd say shaped me when I was young. Yeah. And, and what, um, what did you do at GE specifically before you became CEO? Yeah. So I started in sales in the plastics business. I, I kind of grew up in field offices in Detroit and around the country. And I stayed in that business for the first, let's say, seven or eight years of my career. And then I went to the appliance business and I was in I ran the service business. So all the technicians that would come to your home and, and fix appliances. And I did that for four years during a big product recall, which was really kind of what put me in front of Jack Welch at a very early age and a really How stressful. How old were you? I was 32. And, you know, we were fixing 3 million compressors. And so, you know, we had monthly meetings with uh, in the boardroom at GE, which was really intimidating. And in each one of those monthly meetings, I kind of thought that I could get fired, right, as, as part of the outcome, because it was never good news. And I remember in one particular setting, you know, like it was particularly difficult and, and I was giving him bad news, but I actually had learned how to fix compressors myself. So I was able to go quite deep as it pertains to how the repair took place and why it took so long and in very intricate detail. And I think that probably saved me at that moment in time. And, uh, and so I, I, I got to, to have exposure maybe for bad reasons, but it was good for me. And then I went back and ran the plastics business, which in those days was a pretty big global enterprise inside the company. And then in 1996, I went to run G's healthcare business, which at that time was kind of diagnostic imaging, MR scanners, CT scanners and the like. And, and so those are kind of the experiences I had before I became CEO. So for those of us who don't know, can you explain what it takes uh, what the selection process for CEO is like at the level of, you know, GE when they're selecting a CEO to run GE. 
Yeah. So when I was going through it, it was the late 1990s. And, you know, gee, was, you know, my predecessor was just hugely famous. And so Jack it was Walsh. one of those things that everybody, Jack Walsh, that everybody watched and it was very public. And we were actually told there are three of us. And we were actually told that if if the two of us that didn't get named CEO, we're going to have to leave the company. So it wasn't oh, so all just three of you were insiders. All three of us were insiders. All three of us knew each other, really, and then worked together for five or 10 years as we got closer to the top of the company. Uh, Jack called each one of us individually into his office and said, look, if you don't get the job, I want you, you have to leave the company. Why? And I said, I said you're kidding me. <laughs> so, And his, his rationale at the time, which was not necessarily inappropriate, was that, you know, that we would have our own clicks and our own supporters and that he would want to clear the way for whoever had to take over and that you know we we're all capable to run a company we should go do that and we were ready to do that and so i i think it was logical but it was just very uh public you know my my daughter at that time was in eighth grade i don't think she ever thought so much about uh what i did except for the fact that I made, I was the person that made her move multiple times. So she didn't care for that part of my job, but this, you know, for a 14 year old, all, all of a sudden had to understand that their dad was in some kind of public persona. And mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, all those challenges and, you know, last thing I'd say point is that the process is part of the process, right? In, in other words, it puts you under an intense spotlight. You, you become, you know, you're in a Petri dish, if you will, but it gives people a chance to kind of watch you under pressure and how you handle yourself. And so that's a part of the process as well. Why do you think you were selected over the other two uh, candidates? You know, I don't, my answer to that always is I don't know, but I think to a certain extent in big companies, your peers promote you. So, mm. you know, the person you work for kind of has to like you and people that work for you tend to support you, but the people horizontally, you don't, they don't really have to like you. And I think, you know, I collected a lot of friends over the years. I, I knew a ton of people. I'd worked in different businesses. I'd always been the kind of person that would go out of my way to help other people. And I think all of that probably played into the decision in some way, shape or form. Got it. Okay. So you get the CEO job, you know, it's not yet public. And tell me about the, this moment where you were on the golf course, what happened? Yeah. So I, I'm, um, would make an annual trip to Chicago to play golf with, you know, three other really good friends. I'm changing shoes in the locker room. There's a gentleman there. That's obviously a member, an older gentleman. He says, hey, who are you? And I said, I'm a guest. I'm playing here today. He says, what do you do? And I said, well, I, I work at GE. He says, uh, GE, huh? I feel sorry for that poor son of a bitch that's taking Jack Welch's place. And, and I just kind of kept my mouth shut and went out to the first tee and told my, my buddies. And we had hours, actually years of laughs over that story as the, uh, as the subsequent years went by. <laughs> So, and, and just to paint the picture for people, Jack Welch was considered one of the best CEOs in history, right? Yeah, he was, you know, Fortune Magazine named him the best manager of the previous century, right? In previous the year century. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a pretty tough, uh, pretty tough act to follow. Uh, right. But he was just a very well-known, it was, you know, it was kind of like... Um, 
you know, it was he was a celebrity CEO, so he was kind of like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos all wrapped up, wrapped up into one. He had he had done a good job. He'd done it for a long time. He was very he was very charismatic, and and so that was a pretty daunting task. So that was the person whose whose shoes I was stepping into. Uh, although I couldn't step into his shoes, I'm six four, and he was probably five eight or something like that. So maybe both his shoes put together. So, uh, but that was the task in 2001. So I, I know for myself, I've been in situations where I have been asked to step into roles where the previous, my predecessor was very well liked, very well respected. And during the decision-making process, I thought to myself, oh, I, I don't necessarily want to follow that. You know, I, I don't know how people will perceive me. When you were offered the job as CEO, did you ever think like those are really big shoes to uh, to step into or like maybe I'm not the right person for this job? Did you ever like think of those things when you were making the decision? You know, I was a realist. So, I, you know, there's no way not to think that that his image would be would cast a shadow. That That's just real world. But I never really wanted to be him. I I was a very different person, and I felt like the job that the company needed was going to be different. And you know, I, I think you have to make a choice of of you know how much to honor the past versus how much to push forward. And so when I was at GE, I was never critical of him ever over really sixteen years. But I, we always try to do, I always try to wanted to do things my way and work on things that I felt like were gaps inside the company. And you just have to be really comfortable with that judgment without dwelling on it, uh, you know, for too long. You know, Pauline, I was in Tokyo, let's say 2014. I was being interviewed in front of 2,000 people by the Nikkei press. So we're in the green room and, and the person that's interviewing me says, you know, like, um, what was it like following Jack Welch? And I said, ah, you know, I've been asked that question in a hundred languages 30,000 times over the last few years. We kind of laughed about it. So we go out on stage. First, first, first question is, what was it like to follow Jack Walsh? You know, so you just get used to kind of making that part of your repertoire, even though I never really carried it as a burden in terms of what I felt was important to the company. Yeah, because now looking back, it's it's easy to say, oh, it was this or that. But at the time, like you didn't have any of this uh, knowledge. So how can you just like um, explain to us what was your relationship to Jack uh, when you became CEO? Did you see him as a mentor? Because you kind of grew up in the company. Yeah. No, look, I had immense respect for Jack. But when, when somebody is that, that powerful inside the company, um, you know, it's hard to have a mentorship relationship. I had other mentors, but not him. We had about eight months of overlap where I got a chance to ask him a ton of questions and he was very useful and very helpful then. And then I think over the, you know, first four or five years, we had a pretty good relationship. I think kind of the financial crisis really changed the nature of our relationship and made it a little bit more difficult. There never was, even through the arc of my career, there, every tough um, problem that I ever encountered, I would ask his opinion, even times when I, I didn't really like him that much or he didn't necessarily like me. I would always ask him for uh, his opinion because he, he had great judgment and, and he knew the company. I always tell people that like your successor at a, as CEO is a little bit about the relationship you have with your mother-in-law, you know, 
we, we both love our wife, but in different ways. So huh. I think we both cared about the company, but in different ways. And, and uh, you know, at various times, it was easier for each one of us to accept that than at others. So um, under Welch, GE had been the most uh, valuable company on the planet for a period of time. Can you talk about the reality of the business that it was when you inherited it and when the curtain was drawn and you got to see everything inside? Yeah, I think there were things that, that all of us understood, but basically the business model was, you know, kind of a, a old line industrial company generate a lot of cash. That cash would go to a financial service company. We would lever that cash eight to one to kind of grow financial services. So mm -hmm. we had a 50% industrial kind of stale industrial company, 50% financial, really pretty good businesses. And our price earnings ratio was the same as, you know, Twilio or Amazon or Apple. So we had a 50 PE. Mm -hmm. So I, I think you know, it was just the perception didn't quite match reality. I think, you know, we understood that as we were taking over the board and I, and, and I had conversations with the board. And that's what we said about, you know, kind of reinvesting in the industrial company uh, and, and trying to, to rejuvenate the company uh, while still growing financial services. And that was the decision we made. But that's, that's, that's one of the challenges that every leader um, runs into is how do you match perception with reality? Absolutely. I feel like uh, that's one of the hardest things to do, especially when the world sees one thing and you're in, on the inside seeing something kind of. You have to take people with you, you know, so 9-11 happened and we, we wrote off a huge insurance hit. We insured the World Trade Center. Right. So okay. the first day the markets opened, you know, our number one investor sold half their stake, right? And it crushed the stock, right? And, and I called the portfolio manager and said, really, what's, you know, company's fine, you know, things like that. And, and he said, well, I didn't realize that GE was that big an in insurance. And, you know, I said, really, you know, you own $4 billion of stock. If you don't understand they were in the insurance business, that's that's not my fault. That's not our fault. So the company's in great shape. And, and so, I think it's just one story that that magnifies kind of like how important it is to keep perception and reality in sync. Absolutely. Looking back now, do you wish that you had been more clear and transparent about the reality at the time? Oh, I, I say in the book that, you know, there was a window of time after 9-11 when I think, you know, people after a crisis have a chance to reset you know, their companies and their narrative. There was probably a window at that time when, when I had a chance to kind of reset lower earnings, less financial services, and a really clear path of how much our industrial businesses needed to be invested in in order to get them positioned for the 21st century. I, I think we did some of that. I mean, the decision we made to grow financial services, we were clear about but by the time uh, the financial crisis hit, that didn't look like such a great decision. So the answer, the long-winded way to answer your question is the answer is yes. Uh, there was a window. I do look back on that as something I wish I had done and, uh, and write about it in the book. Yeah, and um, I, I do want to highlight this, though. Your very first day as CEO was September 10th, 2001. And the very next day... 9-11 happened, um, and one of those so-called black swan uh, events. How did you 
handle it, being given, you know, information as just as quickly as everybody else in the world. You didn't have anything uh, else to go on but what we were seeing on TV. Yeah, look, it was the first terrorist event I had ever seen that most Americans of my generation had ever seen. Uh, you know, we were big in commercial aviation. We were big in insurance. We were big in media. All three of those businesses had a huge impact by 9-11. Um, you know, I, I think what you learn in a crisis is that that leaders absorb fear. Good leaders absorb fear. That they they're not accelerators of fear. They they know how to manage a sense of calm while still being really clear about the challenges. And, and that how they, did you do that specifically? You know, again, I think it's always been part of my psyche. You know, I, I have a really stable personal life. It's always been a part of my psyche that you do the best you can, that you never point fingers and that you you basically give people those things that they can control, that they can take action on without freaking them out on everything that might happen. I think you, you learn to hold two truths. You learn to say things can always get worse, but here's a dream that I have of the future and I'm not going to give up on that. You learn how to make decisions, even when you don't know all the facts. You've just, in a crisis, you've got to make decisions. I remember like the airlines were going bankrupt and at 8, 8 p.m. one night, somebody came in and said, look, if we don't buy this airlines, what's called WTC bonds by midnight, they're going to go bankrupt tomorrow. And my question is, what's a WTC bond? I have no idea what they're even talking about. Yet you had to make a yes or no decision. So how do you get the right people in the room to make those? You learn that. And then I just think communications, you, you, you know, in a crisis, frequency of communication is important, even when you don't know what, what the right answer is. And you learn to touch people, you know, very frequently when you're going through a crisis. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. Um, you um, at one point in the book, you admitted that being CEO, you felt this way. And this is how you characterize that. I feel like I want to vomit all the time. <laughs> Can you explain why you felt that way? Was it the pressure of everything or was it all the like you, you thought you signed up for a job that didn't quite turn out how you thought? Like, what was it? You know, I never really felt sorry for myself. But, but you know, it's just like the pressure that the consequences of all the decisions, how little was known. Uh, you know, th that period of time, and it was just a, um, you know, it, it just was relentless, right? Really, it just came in waves and was relentless. And I remember reaching out to one of our directors at that time was a great woman named Gigi Michelson, reaching out to Gigi and saying, you know, the comment you just made. And, you know, her, her comment, and, and I had a great board, their comment was, look, there's nobody better than you. We're so happy you're there. Just do what you think is right, right? And that kind of... 15 or one minute reaffirmation is so helpful to every leader that's confronting, you know, just unthinkable challenges. Absolutely. So you also mentioned that more so than 9-11 or the dot-com bubble bursting, it was actually Enron's fall that completely transformed GE's business. Why? And, and how did you adequately respond to that change? Yeah, no, we had a, a lot of complexity in financial services. Uh, this was under scrutiny. So during Enron, you know, everybody's, you know, how much disclosure, how much was in their audited statements, what was happening with auditors, these were all under, uh, uh, under scrutiny. And I think the fact that GE was complicated, was big, had big financial services, 
that there was a there was always a little bit of a groundswell of opacity around the company mm-hmm. that people would complain about around GE. I think around G yeah. G and G Capital, right? That we didn't understand the business model, things like that. They always make their numbers. Uh, they always beat their numbers by a penny every quarter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When the world shifts, right? You know, I would say. I, I think this was true for G, but was true, true of a lot of companies at the time. You, you were viewed as innocent until you know proven guilty. You, you, were, you were given the benefit of, of the doubt. I think once 9-11, the bubble economy, Enron took place, nobody got the benefit of the doubt it anymore. Flipped. So it flipped, right? And so it was up to us to provide more transparency, more disclosures, longer financial statements, all those things. That was really critical at that moment in time. And so when you're trying to enact change within an organization like GE, obviously it's not, you know, a small, malleable, uh, uh, flexible startup. It's a big, big uh, behemoth. How do you how do you enact change in an appropriate amount of time? Yep. I, I mean, I think that it starts with leadership and structure in some ways. So again, you're not going to get uh, the kind of change you need with the same old leaders doing the same old things. So either people have to change or you have to change out the leaders. You have to build good process from a standpoint of what's the expectation? How do you measure results? What are people accountable for? Mm-hmm. You have to create the right rewards in terms of uh, uh, people being recognized for the work they do. And, and again, there has to be a feedback loop that says, here's what has to happen, here's what we're learning, here's how we try to change. So I would say, you know, Plina, when you think about the post-Enron days, we made a structural change in GE Capital, right? There was no way we could have complied with what the expectations were without removing some leaders and making structural change. Uh, mm-hmm. when, when, I, uh, w- when we decided to really ramp up globalization, we put new leaders in place, we put new metrics in place, we changed the way decisions were made. I say those two things work pretty well, even in a big company. When we try to do GE Digital, I brought in people from the outside. We constantly tried to work on measurements. I communicated uh, my butt off, really, in terms of what what was the need and how do we need to change. It didn't work as well, right? We we weren't as quick. There were too many antibodies in the company. So, I think what I try to show in the book is that. Change is really easy to talk about. It's really hard to do. And it's particularly hard to do inside a big, legacy, complicated company. Yeah, that's I I remember there was one part in the book you were like, um, yeah, when people come to pitch these CEOs and they talk about like, oh, you need uh, to transform, for example, and be more digital and you need to adapt this new technology. And you said that you nodded and said, yes, just like 10 years ago, the CEOs who you know said yes. Yeah. Um, so you also say that great leaders are systems thinkers. Can mm-hmm. you explain what that is and how you were able to find people who were who thought like that within GE? Yeah, I think it's, it's um, you know, a lot of the change today is kind of seeing things across different fields. And so, you know, if you go back to the 2000s, one of the initiatives we led was what we called eco-imagination, was investing in clean technology. Now, at the time we started, there wasn't this groundswell of support there was today. And what year was that? 
this was 2005, okay. right? So, so this there were there wasn't like the huge ESG component that exists today. We were kind of starting at DeNovo. We were a leader at the time, and but what allowed us to do was kind of look across multiple businesses, but it also meant that we looked out into what was going on in the world, what was going on in Europe, what were NGOs saying, and so you know when I talk about systems thinking, I talk about connecting dots across multiple fields in order to drive change. And, you know, I teach a class now at Stanford Business School, and, and we call it systems leadership. But, but you know, it used to be that business leadership was what I would call about the or, right? Am I going to do this or am I going to do that? Now the leadership we teach is about the and, right? You have to be digital and industrial. You have to be global and local. You have to be legacy and new. And so I, I think systems leadership, you know, in its most simplistic form is about finding the and like what how do you combine diverse thoughts and push them forward into action in the future eco imagination was a good example of that uh, digital industrial was a good example of that and, and there's even more examples that are going on today so that's interesting uh, because you mentioned that you are teaching students who you know will be the leaders uh, of tomorrow but how do you practically get those this skill and this skill? Like, aren't you kind of taught to specialize and get really, really good at it? How do you make sure that you're at the intersection of, for example, two different fields? Yeah, again, I think it's part of, you can train people to kind of be be notional about it, but it's kind of part of life experiences, right? You have to try things. You have to try things across a couple different fields and you have to see what success looks like. And so one of the things we do is we bring in 12 CEOs, you know, six from Legacy, six from new. And, mm -hmm. and let's say you bring the CEO of Peloton was one of our guests this year. And he talks about, I want, I want Peloton to be a physical company around the bike, but it's an entertainment company at the same time. So if you're, you're seeing how a leader thinks, like how is he building a culture and how is he seeing, you know, kind of the, the broad array of what Peloton can be? Can Peloton be the Uber of fitness and things like that? So I think a lot of it plain is actually seeing it in practice, right? It's, it's one of those areas where when you see a healthcare leader that's talking about doing value-based care, he or she's a systems leader and you figure out how they take risk and serve patients and do all the things they need to do. That's the system. That's very interesting. I hadn't thought about it in the Peloton example, but that makes sense. Um, so the 2008 financial crisis obviously shook the world, but also uh, very much GE. Um, you say that you had missed your earning numbers three weeks after you promised to hit them. And then Jack Welch went on CNBC where he said that if you, and then he, he is no longer uh, again, CEO of the company you are. Um, and he said that if you missed earnings again, he would be shocked beyond belief and get a gun out and shoot you. What was your reaction in that moment? And how did you handle that? Yeah, I was really hurt, right? Um, you know, because I had very, uh, you know, in 2008, I, I had very carefully never looked backwards or pointed a finger at him. And it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter like who you are or what you're doing. There's like five moments in your life when you just need a friend, right? You, you screwed up, you know you screwed up and you need somebody to give you their hand and not smack your butt. 
and and he chose to smack my butt, not give me his hand. So, you know, and you remember that, right? So he and I had a private conversation. Um, again, I, I never thought it was a good thing for the company to see us bickering in public. So I never did that. But we had a very we had a very direct private uh, conversation. And I think you that was yeah, yeah. It, it was a line of demarcation in our relationship for sure. Uh, nonetheless, look, even after that, to the day I retired, when I had a really tough decision to make, I always called him, like even even when we weren't friends, because I always felt like he had a good perspective, one that 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 I could learn from or, or listen to. And so, you know, that was just, uh, but that was the line of demarcation in our relationship. That's very interesting. Yeah, I um, I thought about that a lot. And it's like, it's one thing to get pr- criticism in private. And it's another thing when you know you messed up to kind of see it in public with everybody else. Um, sure. It's yeah, like good. I knew I goofed up. Right. So Let's you, be clear. You knew. Let's be like, clear. You knew I knew that, right? And, but I was, I was trying to recover and I needed a friend, you know, I just needed, I needed a hand mm-hmm. and, and, and what he did was just the opposite of that. He, he made it, he made a, let's say a two or three day story become a one month story. Right. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking at the scroll on CNBC the day, at, maybe two days after it happened. It's like Jack Welch scolds Jeff ML. He's disappointed, blah, 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 blah. Man, that's, that's unnecessary, unnecessary roughness. Wait, Jeff, you probably don't get asked this a lot, but can I ask you something personal? Sure. Okay. You mentioned earlier that you've always had a really solid personal life. And I'm I'm sitting here thinking like, I mean, just even up to the financial crisis, like it's, it's crisis after crisis after crisis and just a lot of turbulence in your professional life. How did you manage to continue having a solid personal life? Yeah. You know, I've always been good at compartmentalizing. Right. Hmm. So I've always been good at focusing in on staying in the moment to focus in on what what needs to happen and trying to separate that, um, uh, you know, from other things that I'm working on. But the fact of the matter is, is I have a really good I, I have a great wife and a great daughter. And they're complete. They were always completely unaffected by what I was doing. And, and you know, clearly they read things and knew things, but they they were they were always into the person and not the business person. And that's, that, that was a blessing that that's a, you know, there are days where hundreds of thousands of people hated me, but one person loved me. And that was, that was enough to keep persevering into, uh, into the future. That's really great. Did you, um, did you like just, I'm, I'm, and I'm thinking of just CEOs and entrepreneurs today who maybe are facing a lot of scrutiny in public, but in private, they're kind of trying to keep it together. Is there anything practical you would do? Like, would you not talk about business at home? Like, well, what did you do? Yeah, I mean, I think we would try to separate discussions. Sometimes that's just not practical, but but that would be helpful. But, you know, we, we did other things. We we would do things as a family, you know, and, and just personally, like... Um, you know, when I wasn't at work, I was at home. You know, when I was at home, I was engaged in family stuff. Uh, you know, I tried to get enough sleep to kind of make it through the most troubling times. And, and uh, you know, when I was really in stress, maybe the most important thing my, uh, 
my wife did. I was a stress eater, so I'd always put on weight when I was nervous. Is try to you know keep me in the right clothes and stuff like that. So it was, yeah. it, was a, it was a it was a team effort. But I've always been good at compartmentalization. That's that's really interesting and a and a great trait to think about if you know somebody reaches that level of uh, success. So when you stepped away from the company in 2017, I believe it was, how did you feel about your legacy at GE? And in how did you deal with the endless public criticism when you didn't weren't necessarily in a position to start responding to everything? Yeah, that's a great. Uh, it's a very fair question, a very important question. Look, I, I didn't leave the way I wanted to. Um, I, we decided to move to California. I wanted to, to, to do venture, but I also wanted to kind of physically, you know, kind of get away from the company and get away from, uh, you know, kind of New York City and that whole scene because I just needed time to think and reflect. Did you get away because people would constantly ask you and that was kind of the environment there? Yeah, and it just was a, you know, just a different, look, if you're, if you're, um, if you're in Silicon Valley, let's say you travel up Silicon Valley, the venture scene, companies, things like that, and you walk in a lobby, you know, there's no TV, nobody's watching CNBC right. you know, 24 <laughs> hours a day. New York City's just the opposite, right? Nothing wrong with it or right with it. It's just, it's just people are, they're into more risk. They're into more long-term thinking. They accept failure, things like that. So I, I wanted some of that. I, I needed I needed a chance to kind of reboot myself, uh, reinvent, and renew myself. You know, I purposely decided to keep my mouth shut, even though I felt. Look, as you see in the book, I'm harder on myself than I am on anybody else. And there's clearly things I would have done differently. But there's the, a lot of personal how, responsibility. <laughs> there's a lot of personal responsibility for sure. But a lot of the coverage just was, in, you know, untrue and incomplete. And and in a setting like that in a public company, in a big public company, it doesn't just hurt me. It hurt, it hurt hundreds, if not thousands of people. And I didn't think that was right. But, you know, what I did, Pauline, is I really at that point decided to write the book because... I didn't want to defend. I didn't want to seem defensive. Mm -hmm. I wanted to tell a complete story and let readers uh, be the judge. It's a complicated story, right? right? There's good things that we did. There were bad things we did. And I, I thought it was important for people to see the totality. So that's when I decided to write the book. Yeah. Um, so I, I saw that um, shares plunged nearly 30% since you took over the company um, and then with the company shedding more than $150 billion in market cap since your first day on the job to your last, how do you respond to the people and the shareholders who genuinely feel angry at the decisions that you made that led to that uh, share price? Look, the share price is important. You know, it was, I think, 38 bucks when I became CEO was 30 bucks when I left. Um, I understand that. I, 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 I completely understand that. And, and I don't run from that, right? What, what I try to point out is that, you know, we generated almost $300 billion of cash and earnings mm -hmm. over those 16 years. We had great businesses. We, we generated good leaders. In other words, the team, 
really worked hard through a number of different crises and did their best, right? And and that's the best I can uh, that's the best I can offer, right? Is is a more complete story about what happened. Our price earnings ratio went from fifty to fifteen. Mm. That's going to have a big impact on the stock price as you go through that. But but I understand. I, again, I, I it is it, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, you, in the book, you open with an anecdote where you were at Stanford teaching your class. And at the time, um, Jeff Colvin's story at Fortune came out that said uh, in it, a magazine story, it said, uh, what the hell happened at GE was the headline, I believe. And um, you addressed it by telling the students that they could ask you questions directly. Um, what were some of those questions in did they come from a place of anger or understanding? How did you handle that? I think, you know, in, in other words, I think the session started off politely enough. And then, you know, it, it turned into, you know, what happened in GE Power? Mm. Uh, why does your successor blame you? Um, you know, those kinds of questions. What was the board doing and thinking? And I, I think the lesson that I wanted to convey to the students is that Good leaders show up even when it's unpopular and that you can answer questions and defend yourself without being defensive. And, and huh. so that's but, but I think they were just more curious. You know, I think this generation of students, they've lived through uh, uh, the financial crisis. They've lived through now COVID. They they don't they do not believe that there's kind of like a magic seven steps of leadership. <laughs> They're not looking for a course right. or a business book or a magazine to say, look, if you just do these 10 things, you're going to be a great leader. They, they say life is tough. Mm -hmm. The world is uncertain. Show us how you figure things out, right? How do you figure things out when the financial crisis hits or when product doesn't work or things like that? And so that's one of the reasons I, I like to teach is that, this is kind of the figure it out generation. They're less judgmental. They don't want cookie cutters. They're more willing to accept reality. It's a very good point. And um, I've read a lot of business books <laughs> over the years, but um, this one had a section that I've never seen before. It was in one section, you literally went through and listed several of the thorniest mistakes that you believe you made at GE. So it was very reflective. Um, and I kind of let the reader in on, hey, here's how I saw the situation and what I did with the information I had at the time. Is there one mistake in particular that you regret and wish you could do differently now? You know, we talked earlier about the resetting of the company in the early right. 2000s. So let me pick a different one, which is, you know, we, we had we had good leaders. Uh, many of them are CEOs of companies today, but but we ran the company for efficiency. We had eight big P&Ls. Having lived now in Silicon Valley for a period of time, what I would have done is run the company with 100 P&Ls. Huh, why? To give leaders more, more focus, more accountability, but also to make them more innovative earlier on. So I and just easier didn't feel to like pivot. We, exactly. You know, we didn't have a deep enough bench when I was retiring that we needed to face, confront the challenges of the 21st century. So that was probably, other than resetting the company, that would be the one I would point to is that, you know, we just didn't have a deep enough bench. 
that's that's really a good one. So I asked uh, some of the profile readers um, if they had any questions from you for you. And this one I thought was a really good one. Um, they ask, uh, although uh, Jeff takes public responsibility for the overall volatility during his tenure at GE, if given the chance to do it over, what three things would he have done differently? I think this is more of like strategically. Do you wish yeah. that there was something you could do? Oh gosh, I would have I would have simplified the company even further faster. So I would have shed more businesses and doubled down. I would have made the company deeper. So in other words, we were great in aviation. I would have I would have acquired the supply chain, uh, made the company uh, I would say deeper. So simpler, deeper, and and I would have actually driven digital. You know the digital initiative even harder. I, I would have been even more determined and more dogmatic on, on that regard because, you know, unfortunately since I've left, that's kind of slipped, but this is, this is what this generation is really about. So I'd say those three things. Yeah. And, um, as a, as someone in venture right now, you obviously advise a lot of young startups, young founders. And I think what you mentioned with COVID, I think, there is a generation that is seeing uncertainty as a fact of life, not as a black swan event, for example. How do you advise them to become like masters of chaos? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think there's this notion of holding two truths at the same time. So mm-hmm. knowing that like the world is unfair, that it's really tough, and that just when you think things can't get worse, they can't. And so you need to have that, but you also need to keep your head up and know that the best opportunities are going to come your way during COVID or after 9-11 or during the financial crisis. Because again, there's so much change. There's, there's other people that are running out, right? So let me give you a real world example. You know, and and I've been a 30 year kind of China follower, let's say, or investor. The relationship between the U S and China has never been worse than it is right now. But I would be investing in China right now because the market's huge. Everybody's pulling out. You know, the dumb money is is pulling out. This is the best time to go in. And you you never see that until a crisis. And, and the relationship with China right now is in a crisis phase. So I, I think that's what every young leader can do is that you, you can hold two truths at the same time. You must hold two truths at the same time, but only a select group of people uh, can do that. That's very interesting. And it also goes back to the systems thinking. Yeah. Um, uh, if you, so knowing what you know now, if you could go back to September 10th, 2001, and give that Jeff one piece of advice, what would you say? Uh, spend even more time on people. Hmm. Spend even more time on people. You know, in other words, uh, we had a good team by and large. We had a good board by and large. But I, I let some people I didn't trust hmm. stay too long on either the management team or the board. And that always breaks your heart. That always breaks your heart. And you know what, Paulina, look, I, I don't think I'm being overly transparent by saying that every organization that I work with today has two or three people on the edges who just aren't in the game for the good of everybody. 
And, and if I had it through over again, as much time as I spent on people, I would have been even more dogmatic about what good was and what not good was and, and been uh, more directive about how that, how, what changes needed to take place. But what if they're absolutely brilliant, people like them, but they you don't always, trust them? They will always break your heart. And again, it's, you, you don't want people to be loyal to you. You want them to be loyal to the enterprise, right. to the purpose, right? You, you want people to push back on you, actually. Yeah. But people push back on you because they love the company. Those are awesome. People that push back on you because they put themselves first, they have to go. Mm. They have to go. Can you just really quickly explain how to identify those people? Because I think it's a fine line between I'm pushing back because I do love the company and I'm pushing back because I want to be right. You have to see their behaviors. You know, in other words, you can see um, you, you have a debate with a leader. It's a contentious debate, right? They leave. I go to Crotonville to teach the next week and there are 80 people in the room, let's say six of which work for that leader. Mm -hmm. If you're hearing from them the same bullshit that the leader put forward, you know they're not loyal to the company, right? But on the other hand, if you heard of those six people, look, we're in the game for the good of the, of the whole, you know that that leader has your back, is, is in it for the right reasons. And that's how you can tell. You have to go down a layer. You have to do a skip level. You have to see things out of sequence. So you were CEO at GE, did the corporate operator path. Then you went smaller. You are doing venture. Do you have a third act? You know, it's it's. Uh, I love what I'm doing now. I, I, I lived big my whole life with big companies. I wanted to think small again. I wanted to get on the ground floor. I wanted to work with entrepreneurs and students. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to focus really on a one problem, one company, one person. I just, I had missed that and I had gotten disconnected and that has been awesome. So to a certain extent, that's a second act. Um, I, I still think about being an operator again. I, I, I haven't taken that off the table. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm more energetic now. I'm more energized now. So I, I still think a little bit about that for sure. Interesting. Well, you let me know if uh, something changes. <laughs> well, you'll be the first to know. Exactly. Um, my final question for you is, uh, I like to ask this question because I think people define it differently. And also it's not like the status quo of what everybody thinks. But what does the word success mean to you? I just think it's getting uh, getting the most out of my ability, mm. fulfillment, right? I, I think that's at the end. I want to try my best. I, I want to. Um, that's fulfillment, right? Just just getting the most out of whatever capabilities I have. That to me is success. Amazing! Thank you so much, Jeff. This was awesome. Thanks, Paulina. It's really great to be with you, and congrats. Good luck on everything. Thank you so much.